Five years ago, late November, not late enough to be Thanksgiving yet, but late enough that people who attended to these things early had already put up their Christmas decorations. <laughs> not that our local malls and establishment are so constrained that they would have to wait that late. As a matter of fact, I think you're going to start seeing Holly next week at the Galleria. <laughs> But late in November, around the 24th, many of us were yet gathered together trying to figure out what we were going to do about an announcement that was yet coming into our community and whether it would relieve uh, the valve of tension that we had been experiencing together or whether it would yet heighten those tensions once again and take us to a place that we had not yet no, we gathered together in spaces and places large and small to look at the television where simulcast was the voice and the picture, the image of our St. Louis County prosecutor at the time, Robert McCullough. And in preparation for the recognizing attention of that moment, the St. Louis Metropolitan Clergy Coalition gathered with other church-related and faith-based institutions like Metropolitan Congregations United, perhaps in the interest of conciliation and calm and peace, maybe in collusion with the establishment, I don't know, history will tell, gathered together people of faith at Westside Missionary Baptist Church in order to hear and to frame whatever announcement was to come together. And this was one of those things, an odd thing, you know, the church is not in that space where it owns that it should always be ready. 
Uh, but this is one of those times when the church heard the word in advance from our hip-hop poets that if you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. Uh, and, and so the church began, the coalition declared many weeks before that whenever it was clear that the announcement was going to come down, there would be a service at a location certain. That location certain being Westside Missionary Baptist Church in North St. Louis County, where everyone would converge to hear that word together and to have a time of prayer, of praise, of reflection, and of preaching to see how and whether and when we would go forward together. Uh, and because after the many calls, and some people will remember if you are keen on history, that it was August when there was the first call for there to be a commission. It was October by the time it was announced there would be such a commission. And just, just a few days before, at the Missouri History Museum, did Governor Jeremiah A. Nixon appoint and commission members of the Ferguson Commission, including myself, and have two co-chairs, myself and my dear brother Richard McClure. History will also tell whether he made a good decision or whether it was a 50-50. Shot. You can decide which 50% I would. There we were appointed but had not begun our work, and that day would be the announcement ultimately of the No True Bill that charges would not be brought against police officer Aaron Wilson, no relation, <laughs> for the state sanctioned murder of Michael Brown Jr. Big Mike to some, Mike Mike to others. And on that evening, because Jeremiah A. Nixon had just before, days before, appointed the commission, and because uh, I was appointed the co-chair, very likely, I had just enough positional authority in the moment that the members of the clergy coalition thought that I would be the appropriate person to bring the message in that service whenever it happened on the day that the announcement was made about whether there would be charges brought against Darren Wilson. Now, that was, quite frankly, um, a miracle in and of itself. Um, it is not often that preachers decide when there's a lot of them in the room that someone who's not in the room, who's also a preacher, is the best person to preach at a particular moment. Uh, it is further miraculous that the person chosen to preach is a generation younger than most of the preachers in the room, that a young preacher would have anything to say to the older preachers who had already earned their grade that I've only since gotten uh, since August 2014. I'm not going to say how much of the last five years have we earned. They decided that I was a person to preach. There we gathered at Westside Missionary Baptist Church knowing that the announcement would be made simulcast on television that evening so that many of us were gathered around to hear what the word would be. To be clear, there were different responses and different reactions, uh, but part of what was getting at me as I sat there with my I am a man t-shirt and my uh, jeans on and my Adidas shoes, black and white shell toe, and I had, because I was in church, I had to at least have on a sport coat over it, but I understood that I was going to have to leave that congregation and go out into the crowd that was in the street. So I dressed rather for what was going to happen after, happen after church than what was going to happen in there. So I, I knew what was going, uh, where I was going to be next. What I did not know was what I would be called to do 
next. And there we sat, seeing projected on the large screen at Westside Missionary Baptist Church at their second location in St. Louis County, the, the, the images and the voice of Robert McCullough as he made the announcement. Early on in his statement, he said that there would not be charges, but he didn't stop talking there. He kept talking. Laying out pieces of evidence that he suggested came before him that came later to be questioned when others analyzed the same element. He kept talking, giving a description of the biography and the background of a slain 18-year-old boy as if he was on track. He kept talking. Laying out why he was going to do what he was going to do, talking about and lauding the good work that public officials and particularly police officers had done in the interest of public. He kept talking and I was getting anxious. I was just about as anxious and just about as tense as Jesus is in this text in the 12th chapter of Luke. I came to cast a fire on the earth. How I wish it was already ablaze. I have a baptism my baptism I must experience. How am I distressed until it is completed? This Jesus who shows up in Luke chapter 12 shows up wanting something to have happened that has not happened and deeply distressed, concerned, gnawing in his gut about what's going on around him. This Jesus that we don't like because he seems a little bit too rugged, a little bit too many sharp edges. This Jesus that doesn't seem very peaceful, doesn't seem very peaceful, and doesn't seem very solemn. This Jesus who isn't calm, but rather seems agitated about what's going around him is the Jesus I needed in that moment, but I didn't have him. I just had this gnawing in my gut that I wanted this dude to be quiet. And he kept talking. I commiserated with the people who were at the first service because they're the people who come to the 8 o'clock service knowing there's a 9.15 rector's conversation so they know it's got to be done at a certain time. <laughs> you all, you people come at 10.30 and the preacher can just talk on and on and on. Same tension that you now feel, wondering if I'm going to talk on and on and on. <laughs> I wanted this group to stop talking, but the host pastor wasn't paying attention, and, and the person who was coordinating the service, uh, Reverend Sean Jones, wasn't paying attention to the notes that I was sending over saying, turn it off, turn it off. I felt like we were being tortured and terrorized to listen to this man talk. We all very heard what we wanted to hear. Why are we hearing him make the case against this young person, our young black child who laid in the middle of the street? Let's have him stop talking. Let me talk. Let me say something about what's going on. They weren't listening. They weren't paying attention to the note, three notes that I sent over. So I decided I would just stand up and take the pulpit and read the scripture. And I did. I read that scripture. I called out the text. By the time I recognized, they recognized that I was going to preach whether they liked it or not. They decided we better turn this TV off. <laughs> and so they did. I preached something about how the whole system was guilty and how sometimes the system, the legal system, damns certain people and other people. It blesses. And I preached as hard as I could, but not very long, because I knew that we, the beloved disciples of St. John, who were gathered there, weren't going to make it to the benediction. After we finished, we were going to stay here for whatever was about to happen next, whatever these people who would stay there long enough in the midst of the context of Christian worship to listen to what Bob McCullough would have to say about God's slain child who lay in the middle of the street, whatever they were about to do, we weren't here for it. We're going out to the street to be without people. We're going out to that street. 
very soon. And already, recognizing that Thanksgiving was coming, hung the red bulk letter season's greetings over South Florida. So that's what we did. We finished and headed right out to those streets there. We found our neighbors and our friends and our colleagues. We navigated through those streets. And as I came down and up South Florida in the direction that I could finally get in, um, witnessed and told to watch out because on the building the top of some of these buildings that were only about two stories or three stories high, uh, there were people who had deputized themselves, white men primarily who had come up from Oklahoma and Nebraska and other places with long arm rifles to point them down to police black bodies, even though nobody gave them a badge, they deputized themselves to watch what we were going to do that night with their rifles aimed at us as we navigated down the street to see Bishop Robinson, who had fallen faint after the wind, had caught up behind some of the tear gas to walk down the street had caught up in his sensibilities and caused him to fall out. Those who had been trained to give medical attention uh, were doing it with and for him. While we made it past his body laid down to the front of the Ferguson Police Department, which, by the way, had been shut down at the moment, had barricades in front of it because, of course, uh, by using tickets in order to build a revenue stream for uh, that particular municipality, they had enough money to build a bigger and better jail, so they weren't using their jail at the time because they were building it to be bigger and better to house more bodies. Once we made it past those armored trucks that were there, then just on the other side of them, there was in the middle of the street a police car ablaze. Someone had lit it on fire. There we were on South Force in this police car in the middle of the street on fire, not recognizing the realities of what was going on in West Forest and West Forest and where my friend Tracy was in the offices of Hands Up United, the offices that had seen blow through it at least two bullets in the midst of the uprising and there all kinds of businesses up and down the street on West Forest had caught a blaze getting into the car from South Forest to go over to West Forest and finally finding my way over there with a professor from St. Louis University uh, as my uh, co-navigator uh, there we saw plenty that had already caught on fire. I came to cast the fire on the earth, and oh, how I wish it was already kindled, the new revised standard version would say. Jesus, in this particular text, is one who desires the fire. I think in the interest of what we say we desire for a world full of justice and peace and love, a beloved community as has been called for that which Johnny Bernard Hill of Louisville Presbyterian Church calls a multi-ethnic, multi-multi-ethnic, uh, multi-racial community of peace and justice with love as the governing ethic. If we want that, Ibram Kendi says, we got to make some choices. And Jesus says, or models, what choices he has made. What are the choices? First, Jesus suggests that if that's what we desire, then we've got to also desire the fire. Now, I know you don't want it now because it's August in St. Louis. <laughs> but one of the things I came to say at St. John's where I served for 10 years and served in the context 
of the uprising was that in the ministry of the church, a church that is not quite, that is just a little older here than the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion, 166 years old, um, that church, I said all the time, because we had never seen a full capital campaign to build a building. By the way, congratulations on your successful capital campaign. <laughs> Because we had never grown out the structure, because we came into this space and place that those who came before us had erected, I said often that we drink from wells that we did not dig. There's nothing wrong with that. We appropriately honor those who dug those wells. But part of the challenge is when we get so comfortable that we get demanding without wanting to make any sacrifice. And as it relates to the fire, there are many of us who don't want it now because it's obvious, but in November, we're going to want warmth and we're going to want comfort that comes from that heat. But what we tend not to want is the risk and the danger that comes with fire. Jesus suggests that he not only wants the fire, because he recognizes the imagery that he uses, uh, goes back to other biblical Im imagery of refining fire that purifies. He understands that you can't get to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that he's been talking about, the basileia of God, the reign of the Holy One that he wants, unless some radical transformation happens. And so he's not just anxious for the comfort of what the kingdom will provide him, but he recognizes that he needs the fire that will refine the world in which he is preaching in order to get there. The question is, do we desire the fire? Are we willing to make sacrifice, risk, and put ourselves in danger in order to make it to the vision that we desire for the world? I hate to tell y'all, I tried it for 10 years in one place. I've been wrapping my ministry around it for as long as I've understood the concept. But beloved community doesn't just pop up. It breaks in, but it don't pop up. <laughs> and just for the record, anything that breaks in, breaks something on the way. Jesus says in the text, I didn't make this up. I didn't give it to myself. Matter of fact, the lectionary chose for me and then y'all assigned it and sent it to me in the book. <laughs> I came to refine this world through fire. To purify it through risk and danger. And I wish I'd already lived the match. I came in the coming days to have to answer for those Fires, the fire of a police car. Because I had the positional authority of being on the Ferguson Commission, people wanted me to answer for what young people, whom I was standing with, standing beside, and continue to love and respect and glean and learn from every single day. What were they doing out there? Do you, the head of the Ferguson Commission, do you ordain or endorse people lighting fire? I didn't have any good answers, so I did what preachers do. I stole another preacher's answer. My friend Osaka Foseku came to frame this better than I ever could. He said what happened that night was not that buildings were on fire, but rather democracy was on fire. The very project of America was on fire. And while people were asking questions about real estate, they were not engaging in the appropriate self-reflection. If we're going to be anti-racist in the way that Jesus was, if we're going to push against systems in a way that is faithful five years beyond the events of the uprising and the police sanctioned murder of Michael Brown, then we've got to desire the fire. If 
That wasn't provocative enough, but Jesus keeps talking. You think I came to bring peace on the earth. No, I tell you, I came to bring division. I came to break up your household. Nice household of five, we're going to turn three to two. Two against three. Father against son. Matter of fact, that just say it's going to be father against son. He says, Father will square up. I'm sorry, y'all nice peaceful people. Y'all never been in a fight before. Um, I grew up on the southwest side of Dallas in an area called Oak Cliff. Squaring up was something that you had to be regularly willing to do. I'm not saying I fought a lot. I'm just saying I knew it when I saw it. And I knew how to mimic it if I needed it. You know what I'm saying? And so this image of father squaring up against son suggests that there would be intense battle between generations. Not only must we desire the fire, but we must also divide the family. I'm not suggesting you go out and you want to divide people, but I am saying there are moments in time when we need to make distinctions. Part of what Ibram Kendi suggests is that in America, yes, if we reflect on our journey, we must affirm, number one, yes, there has been racial progress in America. But there's also been racist progress in America. And in a state where we just nearly escaped last week a mass shooting in the middle of the state where a man was stopped in a Walmart with open guns and extra rounds and we could have been experiencing here what God experienced in El Paso, we would be helped to own and honor that there has been racist progress. We'll be helped to own and honor that there needs to be some sifting and shifting. We got to name which side are you on. Part of what Ibram Kendi suggests to us is that, yes, there has been racist progress. And to be in America in this deeply rooted, deeply drenched, drowned, and soaked in Western racist ideas that he begins to trace in his work stamp from the beginning, we've got to decide racist or are we anti-racist? There is no in-between. And in order to do that, we've got to make some decisions. And I'm sorry, we, I believe we got to start in the church. I'm a church person. I think you ought to start in the church. Some people do not follow the Jesus that I have come to know and it's time for the family to be divided. I watched Matthew 25 and I recognize that Jesus and God is going to separate the sheep from the goats and maybe if we follow this text we've got to start some discernment as well. You don't get to call yourself Christian and also call for people to be pointing guns at other people. You don't get to call yourself a follower of Jesus the Christ and point people through your rhetoric uh, to aiming at other folks. You don't get to follow the one who built bridges so that he may build with humanity and call for walls to be built on borders. You don't get to call yourself Christian and call yourself also and take up company with people who are anti what Christ said. And sometime, at some point, and I believe it's about past time, we've got to divide the family. Amen. Amen. Distinguish who's who and what's up, what's what. Distinguish who can wear this Christian t-shirt. Who's just claiming? I didn't say it, Jesus said it. We don't even have to have ownership of all of the consequences because he said this is what he came to do. We do have to own, if we say we're followers of Jesus Christ, we're refusing to selectively speak scripture, to selectively lift Christ's witness, that this is a part of that witness as well.
these generational conversations, no, conversation's too easy. These generational conflicts that will lead to the inbreaking of something else that God desires are part of what we've got to lean into as well. That wasn't enough, Jesus keeps talking. We're going to be anti-racist and resist these systems. Call for the kingdom of heaven to come and break in. We've got to desire the fire to born the anti-racist and rock walk against the realities of this world that lean toward these oppressions. We've got to divide the family. But finally, Jesus says, since we got science together and we know meteorology, at some point, we've got to begin to discern the future. Here you are, Jesus said. You see a cloud forming in the west. You like my 11-year-old son. You look up and you say, that's a cumulonimbus cloud. <laughs> Not only can he say at 11 years old that it's going to rain, he can tell you what kind of storm it's going to be based upon the shape and the form of the cloud. If you know that at 11 years old, and you can claim the rain, and indeed it rains, if a south wind blows and you said a heat wave was coming and all of a sudden it starts getting hot, how do you interpret the earth and the sky, but you can't interpret what's going on with the people on the earth? Amen. How do you not know how to interpret the present time? I think there's a little bit of a challenge there. Um, it's not just interpretation of the present time, because of course, once we get it right in our head, by the time we say it, it's the future. So the question is, how do we discern that which is coming? Jesus says, you got, he wouldn't call us on it, he wouldn't judge us for it, unless we had all that we need to do it. So part of what he's suggesting is, you've got all the capacity you need to discern the future, and you're choosing to sit it on a shelf. You know the future. The demographics told you that 2020 will be the first year in American history where the majority of children under the age of 18 will be children of color. You know the future. These children are the ones who are rising to become the citizens and the electorate in America. You know the future. These children right now are one in five of them live in poverty, two in five of them who are black and brown live in poverty. So you know the future. The future of America is food insecure. Because Hispanic children who are becoming a rising part of our demographics are 10 times as likely to be food insecure. The future of America is poor because black people who are, the large, who are a larger percentage of the children in the future than they are in the past uh, live with, uh, uh, live with uh, less resources and family wealth than their white counterparts. And because the future of America is food insecure and the future of America is largely poor, then we recognize that America is also insecure in its national security. You know the future. You don't change gun laws in America in a way that we did within a week, then there will be other mass shooters. And your children will wonder whether they can go to the mall or Walmart and be safe. You know the future. If you don't change laws to get police power with impunity, there will be other lesbian standings standing in the middle of a neighborhood where her son lived, wrestling with the reality of yellow and black police acting before her, keeping her from 
I didn't tell people the Edcock service because you know y'all listen to me talk longer. Um, <laughs> being anti-racist would not make you successful. Being anti-racist would not grow your congregation. Being anti-racist will not cause you to be a significant figure in time. Being anti-racist will not give you positional authority. Being anti-racist will not make you rich. Being anti-racist will not make you a name that is called in the annals of history. Being anti-racist will not cause you to lift up a little better than your buddy on the next few. Being anti-racist will not make you popular among people with authority in this world. Being anti-racist will not get you elected to be in elected office and to have positional power. Being anti-racist will both find you in common cause with Jesus. Anxious that the world is not yet on fire. Seeking that we discern, sip, and shift to refine it. And taking with you the consequences. You do understand that our dear brown anti-racist Jesus was cut down by the state and was killed within three years of his open ministry. And I have come to tell you that being anti-racist may have something to do with you getting on papers with the people as well. I know that ain't good news. The good news though is you will go down with the one who has won history already. You will go down with the one who has taught us about resurrection and you will get a lesson about resurrection that's better and bigger than most Easter sermons that you have ever heard. I've dropped it on you and I'm gone. Ultimately, what resurrection is really about is that when you as identified with Jesus will fight for justice in an unjust world and you find yourself cut down by a world full of injustice. In the Hebrew context, in the Old Testament scriptures, in the First Testament, they understood that resurrection was God's vindication for those who were doing God's work and get cut down by an unjust world. Y'all should have said amen right there but I understand. So I'll say it again. Uh, it ain't about your vindication. It's about God's vindication that we get resurrected. We get to stand again. We get to walk and hold our heads high in glory because God uses our story to get God's name great in the context of the world. So yes, the world might cut you down just like they cut down Jesus. And if it's not enough for you to identify with Jesus, just know that God will use your story to get more glory. And I know that this is not solid for many of you. You may find yourself anxious. You may find yourself tense. You may find yourself waiting and wanting even more. And I'm with you. Jesus is with you. He came to set the world on fire. He wished it was already kindled. And every time I remember what was going on five years ago. And every time I hear somebody claim credit for racial progress without affirming racist progress, it burns me up. 